During seminary, students are expected to complete at least one unit of clinical pastoral education, which is commonly referred to as CPE. Most seminarians complete this requirement by becoming a chaplain in a hospital or nursing home or an addiction recovery center. I was assigned to the hematology oncology ward of a pediatric hospital, which means that I would be seeing children with blood disorders and cancer, as well as dealing with their families. I felt completely in my element. After all, as a pediatrician, I had spent years going in and out of hospital rooms, listening to parents and listening to children. And on top of that, my own research and thesis during medical school had been in the area of pediatric hematology oncology. So I thought I was set. My first night as the chaplain on call for the whole hospital, I received a message that a teenager had drowned. My heart was heavy as I went to meet the family, but still, I really didn't feel ill at ease. In my role as a pediatrician, I had had to deliver news to parents before that their child had died, and I had sat with parents in their grief as they processed that information. But my confidence was completely unwarranted. I arrived at the emergency department to find a large number of people from the teenagers' community gathered in the consultation room and down the hallway. The women were wailing in a language I did not know. They were pulling out their hair and hitting their heads on the floor. I took a couple of men to the side and asked them two questions. I basically said, I need you to answer two things. What is your faith tradition and how many people are coming here today? One of them responded, Mandaean and 200. And come they did. Later, after that evening had passed, I learned something about the Mandaean community. Mandaeans are an ethno-religious group that at one time numbered between 60,000 and 70,000 people living on the Iran-Iraq border. After the Iraq War, that number dropped to somewhere between five and 10,000 living there. Most of the Mandaeans became refugees during the war, and some settled in Texas. The religion itself goes back 2,000 years and is Gnostic, emphasizing polarities such as good and evil, light and dark, flesh and soul. Mandaeans are neither Jewish nor Christian, but their chief prophet is John the Baptist. They practice multiple baptisms in a lifetime to promote the soul's journey toward salvation. Now, my seminary in Austin prides itself on multicultural ministry. There is a whole month devoted to worship in Spanish. I had crossed the Mexican border and taken food to would-be immigrants living in tents by the Rio Grande, waiting for their chance to swim across. I had worshipped in Mexican churches and spent a weekend with a Hispanic congregation in Houston. But in this particular situation in which I now found myself in the ER with grieving people of the Mandaean faith, Saying the Lord's Prayer in Spanish seemed neither appropriate nor adequate. I could not even begin to know how to be a pastoral presence to this group of wonderful people. By the end of the night, as I stooped to pick up clumps of hair from the floor of the consultation room, I was well aware of the wall that can exist between people when we don't know one another's culture. 
Paul himself was well aware of this wall too. Today's passage from the book of Acts takes place in Athens. In the verses before the ones we read this morning, Luke tells us that Paul has been debating with the Jews in the synagogues as well as with the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, I'm going to give a brief refresher for those of us who have been out of school for a long time. Epicureans were largely atheistic and materialistic. This, the material world, is all that there is. Stoics, on the other hand, believe that there's an underlying logic that structures all that is, and virtue is living according to this logic, figuring out what best accords with nature in any given situation, and avoiding being too attached to certain outcomes. So basically, some of the Epicureans and the Stoics and the Jews want to hear more about Paul's views. And then comes today's passage from Acts. Paul takes measures to cross cultural barriers and to speak the good news in ways that the people in Athens can understand. He tries to see the motivation that lies behind what they do or underneath what they do. Although Luke tells us earlier in this chapter that Paul is distressed when he sees all the idols in Athens, Paul is generous in his interpretation when he speaks to the Athenians. And he portrays these idols as an indication that the Athenians are searching for and groping for God. Paul says to them, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. Paul basically goes on to say, this is the God that I'm going to tell you about. And then he does so using the Athenians' own language and their cultural texts. The phrases, in whom we live and move and have our being, and for we too are his offspring, both of these were written originally by Greek poet philosophers in reference to Zeus. But Paul takes them and applies them to this God who raised Jesus from the dead. He takes something that is familiar to the Athenians and uses it to tell the good news of God in Christ. Translating the gospel like this is what every good preacher or evangelist or Christian who reaches out to others tries to do. There is no such thing as a single, universally accessible version of the gospel. Matt Skinner writes, The gospel sounds different every place it is told. That's because the gospel does not exist in some unadulterated form and isolation from human language, culture, or presuppositions. It's always enfleshed in some way, linguistically, culturally, personally. How would we understand it or recognize it as good news for us if it weren't? The truth is that we know things through our own culture, by way of our own context, And Paul understands this when he's preaching to the Athenians. Now, this isn't just something that happens across religions. We have cultural walls and barriers within the Anglican Communion. The Anglican Communion consists of 44 different independent churches that are formed predominantly by geographical borders. Each independent church comes to understand the good news of God's love in Christ from its own unique perspective. We in the Episcopal Church USA 
come to it from a very different place than some of our brothers and sisters in Africa or South America or New Zealand or Japan. Sometimes I read the canons of Anglican churches in other areas of the world just to see how those starting points influence how a church defines itself. In the canons of one Anglican church in Africa, there are rules that specify that in every church and chapel there shall be provided seats for the use of parishioners and others who attend services. It actually goes on to say that if there aren't enough seats, the vestry has to decide who gets to sit and who doesn't. The same set of canons instructs all the lay readers to wear blue scarfs and that after the death of his wife, a man may not marry his wife's grandmother. Now these are not the kind of things that tend to be spelled out in our canons. And yet in another culture they are. Even the specifics of what being Anglican looks like differs from one area of the Anglican communion to another. Now the point to all of this is that the good news of God's love is always embodied. It is unique to specific cultures and situations. When we as Christians say that God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being, we are not restricting God to just some generic universal ground of being. God became incarnate in Jesus of Nazareth, a man who lived in first century Palestine, who was steeped in the Judaism of his day, who had a certain hair color and a particular disposition and a recognizable pitch to his voice, who lived and walked and prayed with a certain group of followers. And when the time for this Jesus of Nazareth to die drew near, he told his companions that he would not leave them orphaned but would send an advocate to be their companion and walk beside them forever, bearing their burdens and helping them to hear the call of God in each and every moment, in each and every situation. God always comes to us in the uniqueness of our lives. That is the scandal of the gospel. That is the good news. This God who refuses to be separated from us by our humanity or by death or by any cultural or linguistic or circumstantial aspect of our lives. And it's not just good news for us. It also shows us how to live in the world in such a way that we can share this good news with others. We don't share the gospel by walking up to someone and telling them our version of the gospel as if we had all truth or as if God wasn't already present and at work in their lives. In an embodied world, participating in what God might be up to in the world means being willing to walk beside others, to learn from them, to see their lives through a lens of generosity, to acknowledge God as a companion to them long before we ever arrive. I'm sometimes skeptical of Paul's motives, but I'd like to think that Paul's speech in Athens wasn't just merely manipulative rhetoric. I'd like to think it was an attempt to embody the gospel, an attempt to communicate across barriers. We live in a world today that has so very many barriers, so very many divides. Black and white, rich and poor, urban and rural, Christian, Muslim, young and old, red and blue. And more and more there is little, if any, true cross-pollination. 
little, if any, true communication between groups. So what might it look for like for us to cross these divides and continue Christ's work of reconciliation in the world? What might it look like for us to be a companion and advocate for those different from ourselves, to walk not in front of them or behind them, but simply beside them? What might be the first step? Because given the world in which we live, that kind of embodiment of the gospel could turn everything on its head. It would be nothing short of scandalous.